and welcome to Silly Break Ideas, episode 18. I'm Marion Jones, and if you're a regular listener, you'll know what to expect. I've been trawling around three more really good travel websites, with the kind permission of the people who created them, of course. I'm going to bring you the general flavour of each one, I hope, as far as that's possible in a few minutes, because I have to tell you, I've chosen three really cracking examples this month, and there's so much to say. But after that, I'm going to hone in a little bit on some of what they've got to say about city breaks. See what ideas we can glean from that. But before we get started, let me just share with you a couple of lovely comments I got about last month's episode. One from Anda of TravelForAWhile.com, who enjoyed hearing her blog come to life and said, You do a great job and I'm going to keep discovering blogs through your podcasts. I do hope so. I hope everyone listening will have a look at some of the websites I've picked out and give them the attention they deserve. And then Steph from Big World Small Pockets wrote, and was kind enough to say that she'd very much enjoyed the podcast too. I like the way you draw out the content, she says, and bring it to life for the listener. And her advice to everyone listening is the following. Get a cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Well, indeed, and thanks to both of them for taking the trouble to write. Okay, so onward. There's so much to cover this month, I think we should get straight on with it. With just a quick reminder first that, of course, all the details you need to find each of the websites will be in the show notes. So, en route, as the French say. Let's kick off with Rhonda and Jeff Album, A-L-B-O-M, and their website, www.albomadventures.com. Rhonda's background is in journalism. There's an MBA somewhere along the line. She's the primary author of the website and takes a lot of the photos. Jeff is, wait for it, a rocket scientist from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And his specialisms seem to be listed as, among other things, food, macro and underwater photographer, in-house graphic artist and the research and technical expert. It's impressive browsing the About page because you discover that they've won shed loads of awards for top blogger and top photographer, two as recently as 2021 and 20 plus from previous years. There are also lots of written articles that they've done. You can find links to some of them. So you immediately feel you're in the hands of two people who've got lots to tell you and that you will be able to rely on what they say. So the website subdivides into various sections cruising, New Zealand and rest of the world. Rhonda and Jeff are, I think, both American-born, but they've been living in New Zealand for 16 years. Hence, that country is one of their specialisms, but they're also great travellers and have visited 63 countries on six different continents. OK, so there are cities in all three of those sections, and I decided for a change to have a look first at the cruising section, where I found some general articles, tips and tricks for cruising, articles on cruise dining, on packing light, etc., and lots and lots of city stopovers. There was Montevideo, there was Oslo, Istanbul, what to choose. I hit on the post entitled How to Maximise a Day in Athens. And immediately we're into the idea that this is not just a record of where they've been, although it certainly is that, but also lots of things that they've learnt from their travels, which will be useful to anybody else thinking of doing the same. Okay, so, how to make the most of Athens if you've only got a day there because it's a cruise stopover? Well, says Rhonda, first thing to do, make a list. 
Of course, most of us would do that heading straight for the internet, but Rhonda reminds us that sometimes on board, of course, there won't be internet. So it's not a bad idea to take a book along with you as well, and they recommend Rick Steves' Mediterranean cruise ports. Then there's the question of should you go on the ship's tour or not, and her personal view on that reads as follows. We generally opt for independent shore excursions. They cost less, do more, have smaller groups, and are more personal. The ship's tours often start more than an hour after arriving in port, have large groups that are impersonal, and frequently include a shopping stop where the ship earns commissions. So, for this particular trip in Athens, a private tour it was. More helpful advice. If you book a private driver, he or she will take you to your destinations and wait outside while you explore them. If you book an official guide, that person will be able to accompany you into the venues. Then there's a list of, I think it was six different tours that you could consider, some private, some individual or group, with all the stuff that you'd want to know. What will I see? How long will it take? And what sort of costs are we talking? There are links aplenty to take you through to the current information. Really useful. And after that came the log of what they actually did the day that they were in Athens. Lots and lots of wonderful photos and enough write-up to give you a good picture. When you read the post, it does strike you that they got quite a lot done in one day. And that, of course, is because of the idea that they got a driver who knew what they were doing and where they were going to take them around. So they saw the Acropolis and the Parthenon. They went to the ancient marketplace, the Agora, and they stopped in Syntagma Square, the central square in Athens, to see the changing of the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Of course, there are loads of museums to choose from. A helpful list is given, so you can research them. But Rhonda and Jeff, in fact, went to the National Archaeological Museum of Athens, with artefacts from all over Greece. And as Rhonda says, as a bonus, it was air-conditioned, which provided a refreshing break on a blistering hot day. Lunch, obviously, needed after that. And they had souvlaki. Now, I must confess I wasn't entirely sure what that was. So, of course, I checked and I was delighted to learn a little linguistic nugget. Souvlaki lunch means small pieces of chicken or beef or lamb, and sometimes vegetables, grilled on a skewer. And the linguistic info that went along with where I found the info is the fact that a souvla means a skewer in Greek, and a souvlaki means a small skewer. So there you go. After lunch, they went to the Panathenic Stadium, that's the Olympic Stadium, the world's only Olympic Stadium, in fact, built entirely of marble, and one which has in fact hosted no fewer than three Olympics. The first modern Olympic Games were held there in 1896, and again in 1906, but it was also used in 2004. Not as busy as the other sites they visited. In fact, there was enough room for their two daughters, who were with them, to have their own race around the Olympic track and then stand on the podium. That is surely what everyone wants to do when they visit an Olympic stadium in the country which is indeed the home of the Olympics. This is also the place where every time there is a new Olympic Games, the first Olympic torch is lit before it's taken off on a tour of Greece and then flown to the host country. And Rhonda explains how to find, just outside the stadium, the room where the six Greek Olympic torches are on display. And towards the end of the post, Rhonda writes, Did we see all of Athens in a day? Of course not. We did see many of the highlights, but here are a few more key things in Athens which we missed. So again, a useful list. 
which you can use as a basis for planning your own visit. And the post is followed by lots and lots of comments from readers, prompted by Rhonda's question right at the end, what would you do if you had just one day in Athens? So that's another way of gleaning more ideas. Here are a couple just as examples. If I had one day in Athens, I would see the Acropolis, and on my way down I would go to Anaphiotica, my favourite neighbourhood in Athens, and then the Archaeological Museum. Someone else writes that they'd actually been to Athens for nine days, but if they only had one, quote, I would have gone to Plaka and the main square, visited one of the churches, eaten an authentic Greek meal, and then gone to the street market with antiques. Oh, and maybe visit one of the islands. So, lots to get you thinking. I wanted to explore a different and contrasting post, and so I thought I'd have a look at the New Zealand section, since that is definitely one of Rhonda and Jeff's areas of expertise. There are some 60 to 70 different posts on Auckland, because, as Rhonda explains, we feature a cross-section of Auckland, ranging from adventure to relaxation. It's a city that has it all. By the way, they also run a Facebook group entitled Explore New Zealand, where you can share travel tips with other people, stories and photos, or just ask questions. OK, so Auckland then. So many posts to choose from. Whale watching, day trips, where to go if you want to spend a morning feeding New Zealand lambs. I picked the self-guided walk along Queen Street, which opens like this. Every major city has a street that does it all. In Auckland, Queen Street is it. Queen Street, Auckland is the heart of the central business district, a shopper's paradise and a tourist destination. So we're taken along, sites are pointed out, restaurants are recommended. There's a separate write-up on a food tour which they did. We stop off, for example, at the junction with Fort Street and are told that if we'd been there a century or two ago, we would have seen a row of heads impaled on posts along the shoreline. The original Maori name, let's see if I can pronounce this, Te One Panea, maybe, apparently translates as Beach of the Heads in a Line. There's a hotel with a haunted gin room. There's a marvellous civic theatre with, quote, magnificent exterior and a real wow factor when you enter. And there's Aotea Square. Apologies, by the way, if that's not how you say it. Anyway, when you get there, you'll see a wood and copper carving done by a Maori sculptor, one Selwyn Muru, whose tools are a chainsaw and a chisel. It's a sculpture which represents five symbols, all with Maori titles. I will gallantly have a go at pronouncing one or two, just to give the flavour. So there's one called Wetu Mete Marama, which represents heavenly spheres. There's Tauhiri Matea, god of the elephants, and Tane Mahuta, god of the forest. So enough atmosphere and detail to make you feel you get an impression of what it would be like. And the post ends with some helpful advice. For example, the idea that there are three official languages that you'll see on the signs everywhere in New Zealand, and they are English, Maori and Sign Language. There are lots more helpful posts on accommodation and transport. There's a handy list of free and nearly free things to do in the city. And there's a post entitled 18 Best Parks in Auckland for Walking, Hiking and Natural Beauty. Browse those and you'll find a whole range of rolling paddocks, historic buildings, walking tracks, bistros, playgrounds, a star dome observatory and even the summit of Mount Eden, an extinct volcano, from which you will get an impressive 360 degree view of Auckland. 
Just in that one post there are bird sanctuaries and beaches, waterfalls, campsites and lighthouse, places to surf or visit the zoo. And, again, helpfully, one or two hints about places you should avoid at night. And all of this with glorious photos. So, I hope I've given you some idea of what's on offer, but I have to say I haven't even mentioned the biggest section of all on the website, which is entitled Rest of the World. Breaks down into Oceania, the Americas, North, South and Central, and Europe, North, South, East and West. Just as an example, drill down a bit through Northern Europe. There are some 25 posts, not all cities of course, but in there you will find London, Edinburgh, Dublin, Oxford, Bergen, Oslo. All I can say is go find. And of course, thank you very much to Rhonda and Jeff for agreeing to share some of their ideas with us. Moving on then to the second website for this month, Roads and Runways, where the About page opens like this. Welcome to our site. We are Richard and Sarah, a married British couple with a love of touring the world. We want to give you the tools to tour, get out there and explore the world. They were both inspired by travels when they were younger with their families. Richard spent a month in Japan when he was only 13 and writes, The difference in people and cultures had a profound effect on me. Sarah was inspired by lots of family trips to Europe and then, when she was a little bit older, by a solo month spent in Victoria, Australia. However, she writes, My favourite country to visit now is definitely the USA. It's where we got engaged and where we went on our honeymoon. We've visited 14 states so far and there's still loads more I want to explore. And they tell us that Richard is the tech geek on the website, Sarah is the planner. Okay, so what to find? Under the destinations section, there are a number of different things. For example, a section on cycling trips. One they did from Vienna to Budapest, for example. A six-day trip showing them, quote, Viennese grandeur to the Pearl of the Danube. They went via Bratislava and a number of unpronounceable Hungarian places. There's a section on road trips. I think there were about 18 or 20 of those. Lots in the USA, Central Oregon Coast Road, for example, plus some advice pieces such as where to stay between LA and the Grand Canyon or how to plan a US road trip. Mainly the US, but not exclusively. There is also the Southern Albania road trip. And then the biggest section on the website is the one entitled Countries. And under that, there are 13 different countries listed alphabetically from Albania to the USA. And amongst those, lots and lots of city posts. There's Bruges and Brussels. There's New Year's Eve in Prague. A little collection of German cities, Hamburg, Berlin, Dresden. A set of Italian ones. A weekend in Rome, a day in Capri, Naples. Herculaneum and Pompeii by train. There are weekends in Krakow and Barcelona, but I picked one of their more recent posts, a weekend in Vilnius, which of course is in Lithuania, if you're someone like me who gets your Baltic countries a little confused. So the post takes the form of a city break guide, lots of transport and accommodation details, and then a breakdown into three different days and ideas for things that you could do. Day one. Yes, people go to Vilnius for a cultural break, but It's also a hipster city. Why not start there? So there are ideas for a really quite relaxing sounding day, which kicks off with breakfast at Uptown Bazaar, where there is everything from oysters to donuts, 
And then the idea that maybe after that, you'd go on a 20-minute walk to an area of the town called Uzupis, if indeed that's how you say it. U-Z-U-P-I-S. It's the bohemian arty bit of Vilnius, which is great in its own right, and it's also a good thing to do because the walk will take you right through the UNESCO heritage old part of the town. There are ideas of places to call into if you wish, such as the Museum of Illusions, and there are recommendations for art installations, pubs, and generally things to do en route. And when you get there, they say you should end your hipster arty day at a particular named pub where you can enjoy craft beers and specialist whiskies. And then a change of atmosphere for day two, why not visit historic Vilnius? You could start at the Museum of Occupations and Freedom Fights, which is housed in a building where the KGB operated for 50 years. Exhibits, prison cells that you can visit, really a lot to learn. Here's a quote. You will really get a good understanding of what it was like in Vilnius during the Soviet occupation. It really makes you pause for thought to think about what was happening in Lithuania as recently as the early 1990s. Staying in the old town, they would suggest lunch at somewhere called Gastronomas, which is a modern food court, and then, of course, a visit to Vilnius Cathedral, where there's a crypt and a tower. You can go on a guided tour and learn, in fact, more about the Soviet occupation. When the church fell out of use, the Soviet plan being perhaps to make it into a garage, but how eventually it became a concert hall, and after the Soviets had gone in the 1990s, was reconsecrated and became a church again. A good way to end the day here, they say, is to go on a food tour. There's a separate post about this, in fact, but just to give you a few highlights, you should definitely try some shots of the local Starka, S-T-A-R-K-A, which is a bit like whiskey. They learnt how to toast each other in Lithuanian, Buk Svekas, which apparently means be healthy. And then there's a description of various other local drinks they had and lots of food. Pretty much everything we ate was a first for us, they write. That includes rye bread, cured pork sausages, herring with cinnamon and apple fried onions, borscht, and a speciality which is apparently, quote, to the Lithuanians what lasagna is to the Italians. It's a pork and potato dish, think bacon, milk, onions, eggs, baked in a clay pot. Yes, they say, the food tour was definitely worth it. They ate lots. They learnt lots of history and culture. They saw lots of bits of the city. I got the impression they would definitely recommend it. OK, we're only two days in, the third day in Vilnius. They say you should definitely explore the old town properly. And also go outside the city for a walk up the Hill of Three Crosses, just outside the town. It'll take you 20-25 minutes to walk up, and you will get marvellous views of the city when you get there. History here too. Quote, there are broken pieces of old crosses before you reach the Three Crosses Monument. During the Soviet occupation, the old monument collapsed and a rebuild was not allowed. The current Three Crosses Monument was built in 1989 as the occupation was coming to an end. And, by way of contrast, a quick look at a second post of theirs, completely differently. This one is entitled, Five Best Places to Eat in Seattle. It's our favourite city in the USA, they say, and there are fantastic places to eat. So here are our recommendations for five of the best. We've spread them out over the city so that no matter which area of Seattle you find yourself in, you won't be far away from a great food stop. 
number one on the list is somewhere called the Pink Door, which does sound slightly enigmatic. There is no sign, apparently, so you need to know where to find it. And when you get there, you'll find Italian cuisine plus entertainment. Go on a Sunday or a Monday, they say. Make it a date night, because on offer on those two evenings is a burlesque-style aerial performance. Then there's Lowell's Restaurant for the best cooked breakfast we've had in the USA. Then there's the Crumpet Shop, with a choice of crumpets topped with eggs, sweet toppings, savoury toppings, lots of options about making your own combinations, tea and coffee of the very best sorts, of course, as you would expect in Seattle. It's all perfect, they say, for a quick, light breakfast. Then there's what sounds like a Seattle, or possibly US, I don't know, institution, McMenamin's. There are lots across the city, and the one they've chosen is called McMenamin's Six Arms. Great selection of beer and wines, they say, great foods. And if you're in the city for a few days, consider getting a McMenamin's passport, which gives you some free food options after you've eaten there a few times. And their fifth of their top selections is Cupcake Royale, also has several outlets in the city, and, quote, claim to have the best cupcakes and ice creams in Seattle, and I would back them up on this. There's a wide selection of both, and the advice we're given is, if you opt for the cupcake Sunday, make sure you haven't eaten recently. And the post ends with some honourable mentions, as they put it, a fantastic bakery, a bay cafe where you can get no-frills fish menu, definitely a list to consult any time you're going to Seattle. You may be wondering if I can find a third website which will come up to the very high standards set by the first two, and the answer is, do not worry, I certainly can, and it's www.packthesuitcases.com, run by Caroline, who's based in the northwest of England, and writes, I work full-time, but I try to go away every three months, or as much as you can stretch 32 and a half days of annual leave to. I started this travel blogging malarkey back in May 2016. I've always enjoyed boring friends and family about my travels. However, I still find it baffling that strangers on the internet apparently also quite like hearing about them. But they do. I've somehow ended up with 40,000 plus of you a month reading this blog. Caroline makes it clear that she has a full-time job that she really enjoys, but in fact she does a little dabbling in writing as well off the back of the blog and there are lists there of things she's had published, a piece called How to Spend Two Days in Hamburg, for example, for a tourist agency called Come to Hamburg, and a guide to Manchester, UK, for Hotels.com. Loads of European City Break ideas on this website. There are 20 countries, and if I just take the first few alphabetically, from Bulgaria, there's a post on Sofia, from Croatia, Zagreb, the Czech Republic, Prague, Denmark, Copenhagen, Germany, Lübeck, and lots of posts on England, as you'd expect. Everything from Liverpool and Manchester to Skipton and Stockport, which is, quote, an underrated gem. There's even a post entitled 18 Best UK City Break Ideas, all of which give you ideas for what to see and do, what to eat and drink, and where to stay. Summing up her travel tastes, Caroline writes, I love cramming in loads of off-the-beaten-track exploring, getting some culture with museums and galleries, finding pretty spots and cobbled streets, visiting gardens, eating all the food, trying local craft beer, and doing day trips on trains. I bloody love a good coastal train journey. Bonus points if it has a nice village pub at the end of it. 
So lots to explore if you're interested in city breaks. Drilling down a little further, I worked out that actually she has two particular specialisms, one being Madeira and the other being Japan, where she has some friends. So I thought I'd focus on one post from each of those. OK, Madeira. Well, there are lots of posts about Madeira. A seven-day itinerary for Madeira without a car. There's one called the Ultimate Madeira Travel Guide. There are various day trips, a post called the Best Bars in Funchal. But I thought for today I would highlight the one called 45 Things to Do in Funchal, which opens like this. Surely no one goes to Madeira for a city break. The short answer is, I do. There's warm weather in winter. You can have a city base with plenty of day trips to mountain and coastal villages. So Madeira is ideal. For this particular post, she says she's focused just on the city itself and day trips that you can do easily without a car. Because, as she says, if she focuses on the whole island of Madeira, quote, it will turn into 45 million things to do. So, Funchal itself then. She gives us ideas for some classic city break things, such as visiting the prettiest square called Avenido do Mar, illustrated by one of her favourite photos, which shows, quote, a pink building, a statue and a glimpse of the mountains in the background. It's just so lovely. She gives you tips about exploring the steep side streets of the city, one of which is bring proper shoes. She talks about the town hall square with its black and white chequered design and its pretty 18th century town hall with a lovely courtyard inside and an art collection which you can tour every weekday at 11am. She gives us some quirky ideas too. If you go down towards the port, for example, you will find a statue of the footballer Cristiano Ronaldo and a football museum, about which she writes, My other half seem to like it, but that's an hour of my life I'll never get back. The link, if you're wondering, is that Cristiano Ronaldo apparently owns a hotel down in that part of the city. There's also something called the Painted Doors Project, an art installation around the old town. Who doesn't love a good door? asks Caroline. And, quote, some of them are amusing, some are beautiful, and some are edgy. There's a description of a cable card ride you can take up to the mountain town of Monte. It is, says Caroline, obligatory that you wave at people on the way past, and they must wave back. And when you get there, there's a tropical garden to visit. If you fancy a terrifying mountain bus trip, then go on the excursion to the Valley of the Nuns, where you will see stunning views. And when you get there, find a pretty little village to visit with, quote, the best graveyard you'll ever see. There are ideas too for things to eat and drink. You should definitely tour Blandy's Wine Lodge, she says, preferably not on cruise ship day, so that you can find out about and taste some Madeira wines. And you should definitely, says Caroline, quote, eat your own body weight in pastel di nata, a crispy tart filled with creamy custard about a million times nicer than the British version of a custard tart. But tip number one on the food and drink front is to try poncho, the national drink, which is, quote, said to be the staple diet of Madeira's fishermen. That's rather worrying if they're in charge of a boat. Think sugarcane rum, honey, sugar and orange or lemon juice. And bear in mind that, quote, apparently if you drink too many poncha, you will be able to speak fluent Portuguese. And moving on to Caroline's other specialist topic of Japan, I've picked out a town I've actually never heard of, just for a change and just to see what was there. And it is, and again, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, 
Kochi, K-O-C-H-I. I definitely recommend Kochi, says Caroline, as a more off-the-beaten-path city in Japan. Maybe for a second or third trip. You don't normally think of palm trees, laid-back attitudes and citrus fruits when you think of Japanese cities, but Kochi is here to turn all that on its head. The post is entitled Things to Do, See and Eat in Kochi, and the very first entry, in fact, covers all three. A visit to Hiromi Food Market, which is at one end of the main shopping arcade. You'll find it a bit baffling, she says, but just go for it. Find a seat at one of the communal tables, and then go and find your food and drink. You probably have to point at things. There'll be loads of baffling choices. There might be an English menu here or there, but otherwise, Google Translate and hand gestures. And if you want tips on what to eat and drink, try Katsuo no Tataki, which is apparently lightly broiled bonito fish, served with spring onion, ginger and garlic. And to drink, why not try a pint of yuzu beer? Kochi, says Caroline, is very famous for its yuzu, which is a citrus fruit, a bit like an orange-lemon hybrid. Yuzu beer was brilliant and dangerously drinkable. Things to do in Kochi would include visiting the 16th century castle, which is on top of a hill but still in the town centre. Lovely views, cherry blossom if you go in spring. Not the best castle she'd ever seen in Japan, but it wouldn't, quote, look out of place in a fairy tale, and was worth a visit for sure. There's a little red bridge in the town centre called, here's another pronunciation challenge, called, possibly but not definitely, Harimayabashi, which apparently is Japanese for the little red bridge. I think Caroline admitted to being slightly underwhelmed by this bridge, but she did recognise that because it's part of a legend, the people of Kochi, indeed the Japanese generally, like to visit it. She gives us a brief idea of the legend, something about a woman from Kochi falling in love with a priest which of course was problematic and came to a head when he was caught buying her a hair comb. And the culmination of the story, I think, was that they had to run away together. I think from what Caroline says, the visit to Kochi is less about seeing a lot of sights, really, but more about just the atmosphere. Walk around the city centre, she says, and you'll find palms, sunshine, a beachy feel. In fact, an actual beach, which she describes as the sandy little jewel in Kochi's crown. Not least because there are not many proper beaches in Japan, so this is an experience to be savoured. Have a wander, eat in one of the restaurants, have a look at the souvenir shops. There are lots and lots more posts on Japan, other cities, including Tokyo, where there are posts on sumo wrestling, 20 unique things to do in Tokyo, and a three-day itinerary. There are other lesser-known cities, Okayama, Takamatu, Nara, Kobe... Posts with titles like a two-week itinerary for first-time visitors to Japan and everything you need to know for your first visit to Japan and the opening lines from the three-day itinerary to Tokyo give an idea of Caroline's approach to travel and indeed to Japan. I've discovered that you can't ever get to grips with Tokyo and won't scratch the surface in three days, five days or even two weeks. It's a city to be loved but never fully understood and I'm fine with that. So I've written this three-day itinerary, which doesn't cover even a fraction of what there is to do, but has a decent balance of exploring, culture, fun and food. It goes off the beaten track a bit, but still includes plenty of big hits. There you go. What more could you possibly want? Thank you then to Caroline and, of course, to our other guests. I'm sure you'll agree that each individually has given us loads to think about 
and that really between the three of them, our cup truly runneth over. If, by the way, you're listening to this and you write a travel blog, which I haven't come across yet, and would like to be included on a City Break Ideas episode, or indeed you know of a website written by someone else that would make a good thing to include, please do let me know. You can email me at citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at citybreakscast. And that just about rounds things up for today. City Breaks will be back next week. We are, as you'll know if you're a regular listener, between series at the moment. The London series, the longest to date at 27 episodes, finished a week or two ago. And I've been experimenting with some extra episodes. There was Florence Extra. Four episodes with interviews with people in Florence, at the tourist office, editing a magazine for English speakers in Florence. That sort of person gave us loads of ideas and insight. I'm moving on to one or two Munich Extra episodes. And the new series, to be announced very soon, is scheduled to start at the beginning of November. I hope you might be inspired to go and have a look at some of the material that's already on the website. I've covered eight cities to date. Think Toulouse and Paris. Think Seville, St. Petersburg. All of them offering, I hope, all the background history and culture which you'd like to have in your head about those cities before visiting, or actually just anyway for interest, but which you don't quite have time to research for yourself. If you think that sounds interesting, do have a rummage on the website, address given in the show notes, if you didn't quite catch it. Okay, enough. I hope I'm leaving you with lots to think about, and I hope too that you'll join me next week as well. Thanks for listening. Bye.